0: Welcome back to the AUA University Podcast. Thank you for being a part of our podcast. Today's topic will be a review of the AUA guideline on castration-resistant prostate cancer. This is presented by Dr. Adam S. Keibel, Chief of Urology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center. In addition, he is Professor of Surgery at Harvard University School of Medicine and Chairman of the Harvard Urology Residency Program. So the task I was originally given was to review the AUA CRPC guidelines for the management of, of prostate cancer. This was a guideline that I was very fortunate to help put together uh, as the vice chair of the Guidelines Committee, along with uh, 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 most notably Michael Coxon, who was the uh, the, the, uh the the chief architect, the chair of the Guidelines Committee and a host of other people that we're going to mention at the end. Uh, It became apparent as things have evolved that we're using these agents earlier and earlier in the disease process and it's important really to understand how to use systemic agents beyond hormone deprivation therapy for patients who have metastatic prostate cancer. So those are my disclosures. Uh, The ones that I think are really uh, uh, important for this are uh, Janssen. Bayer and Sanofi-Aventis, MDX is a, uh, a, as you all know, is a a company, a device company that makes a test uh, for uh, the genetics of prostate cancer. And Profound is a localized prostate cancer uh, company. Okay, so uh, the approval of docetaxel, which was the first drug to offer survival benefit for CRPC, five additional agents have demonstrated survival benefit and have been approved on the basis of randomized clinical trials. Uh, These uh, are listed right here, abiraterone, carbazitaxel, enzalutamide, and radium-223, as well as CYPT. Since the publication and updating of the guidelines, randomized trials went on to demonstrate that we could uh, uh, get—demonstrate survival advantage for the systemic therapy for castrate-sensitive metastatic disease. So not disease where the patient has received hormone ablation, but patients who present with metastatic disease that you would normally just put on a hormone ablation. And both abiraterone and docetaxel have been found to have a benefit in this space. These are not part of the guidelines, but we thought they were important that everybody knew about them. So this is a, a, a treatment a timeline evolution. You can see back in 2004 there were two randomized trials that demonstrated a benefit for docetaxel. And then there was a pause about six years where we had no additional agents, and then a flurry of agents over the past seven years. Uh, which uh, obviously is nice because it gives us much more uh, treatment alternatives in our armamentarium, but obviously makes it a little more confusing in terms of the management. Consistent with the uh, AOI methodology, the, a, uh, a subsequent uh, systemic review uh, uh, and review of the literature was completed in 1996 through 2013. They looked at about 5,000 potential studies. About 303 qualified for a final analysis, and the guideline statements and treatment algorithm were formed on the basis of this literature review. This is just giving you background about how we came up with the guidelines. Uh, We re-reviewed the literature between April of 2014 and March of 2015, found an additional 37 publications, predominantly around radium-223, and also around pre-chemotherapy enzalutamide. And we went ahead and included those in an update of the guidelines. Uh, And then I would uh, argue that in the future, uh, uh, castrain-sensitive treatments will also be included. But those are not included in the current guidelines. It's important to understand the methodology. Uh, The methodology breaks things down into A, B, and C. A are well-conducted randomized clinical trials or exceptional observational studies. That's the highest uh, level of evidence. Uh, B are randomized clinical trials or observational studies that had some weakness in them. Uh, And uh, the weakness doesn't mean the trials were done poorly. It just means that it doesn't answer the questions uh, as perfectly as we would like. Uh, C uh, uh, is observational studies that are inconsistent or difficult to interpret. And then we also have uh, a breakdown as standard, recommendation or option. So standards where the benefits clearly outweigh the harms and you have to have a level of evidence either A or B recommendation is where the benefits also appear to outweigh the harms but the the evidence isn't quite as strong it's mostly observational studies and then an option is where the benefits seem to equate with the harms and that could have any level of of uh, evidence a b or c when you go through these you realize that there are issues uh, that come up in the actual management of patients, and that's what these clinical guidelines are designed for. So you can sit there and decide how you're actually going to take care of your patient that don't fit nicely. So we had to come up with other uh, ways of giving guideline statements. So one is a clinical principle, a statement about the component of clinical care that is very widely agreed upon by urologists and other clinicians of which there may not be evidence in the medical literature. Uh, and we. You know, we have to depend on these all the time, not only in prostate cancer, but in our management of all of our patients. And then lastly is expert opinion, which is a statement achieved by consensus of the panel that is based on members' clinical training, experience, knowledge, and the judgment for which there is no published evidence. The index patients uh, uh, were broken down to assist in clinical uh, decision making. And the index patients were uh, divided into six different groups on the basis of absence or presence of metastatic disease, degree and severity of symptoms, whether the patient was asymptomatic or symptomatic due to their metastatic cancer, the performance status, how sick they were from other medical problems or possibly from the cancer, and then prior dose of taxol chemotherapy. It's important to understand the performance status uh, and. Uh, you know, grade zero is a, an individual who's fully active, able to carry on all the dis, uh, pre-disease performance without restriction. So somebody who looks perfectly normal, you wouldn't know that they had metastatic prostate cancer. One is a patient who's restricted for, from physically strenuous activity, but otherwise is doing pretty well. Two is ambulatory and capable of all self-care, but unable to carry out any uh, work activities, and they spend up to uh, 50% of their time basically in bed uh... three is capable of only limited self-care confined to bed or chair for more than fifty percent of their waking hours so this is somebody who's really sick four is completely disabled can't carry on any self-care is really just totally confined to a better chair and then uh, five is 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 uh, is dead so yeah I, I, it's interesting that they have that hard to enroll those patients I, I, I you know i'm sure that the ECOG performance status would come up for good reason and uh, the five, I bet, does play a role in certain disease states. Uh, that if I was up here more educated about it, somebody would be able to tell me. So these are the index patients. One is asymptomatic, non-metastatic CRPC. Two, symptomatic or minimally symptomatic metastatic disease. So this is a patient with metastatic disease who hasn't had any prior chemotherapy. Three is the same, but now instead of being asymptomatic, they're symptomatic. Good performance status, no prior dose of taxol. Four. Symptomatic, metastatic, poor performance status, no prior dose of taxol. And then five and six are ones who have received dose of taxol. Again, we have patients that are symptomatic, metastatic, good performance status, prior dose of taxol. and then six is symptomatic, metastatic, poor performance status and prior dose of taxol. We're going to go through these, each of these uh, uh, individually, so it'll, it'll click a little bit better as we go along. Uh, I think it's important to recognize there's also metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer, which is what I'm going to go through first. There's no guidelines on this yet. So there are two randomized trials that have, actually, I shouldn't say that. there are three randomized trials that have actually looked at giving patients uh, uh, systemic agents who have metastatic castrate-sensitive disease. The first is a study by Chris Sweeney published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. They took patients who had metastatic, hormone-sensitive disease, about 800 of them, and randomized them to standard of care, which is just androgen deprivation, or androgen deprivation plus six cycles of docetaxel. Uh, they, they, uh, they stratified them by disease burden, performance, status, age, and whether they had, had received some prior androgen deprivation therapy. And they looked until the time they developed castrate-resistant disease and the time until the important variable, which is death. And they... Im- both parameters it improved one by 8.5 months the other by more than a year these are the Kaplan Meyer curves for all patients and the top curve are the patients who received androgen deprivation and docetaxel and clearly that's better than the patients who received androgen deprivation alone and that improvement is over over a year which is pretty nice uh, if we look at patients, they broke it down into high volume and low volume disease. This is something we're going to get into later as, uh, as uh, some of the other faculty give their lectures. And the benefit was predominantly in the patients that had higher volume disease, four or more metastatic deposits. Uh, and there you have a benefit that's getting closer to 18 months. When they looked at low volume disease, this is from the actual paper, uh, there wasn't really a benefit, though many of us believe since the, uh, since the uh, let's see if I can point with this. Yes, since the hazard ratio is about 0.6, uh, that this actually would prove to be beneficial in the long run. However, uh, these Kaplan-Meier curves and subsequent presentations have sort of flattened out, and the belief now is this is a better treatment for patients that have higher volume disease. Uh, this is the the uh, uh, the uh, a plot that basically shows that no matter what parameter you look at—high volume, low volume, age, ethnicity, ECOG performance status. Patients generally benefit from the combined therapy. Again, these are patients who either had ECOG performance pattern uh, zero, one, or 2. So these were patients that were in pretty good shape. There was a second study called Stampede that was run in, in, in England, which is a very similar study. Essentially, they came up with the identical result. So the, the take-home message is docetaxel plus androgen deprivation beats androgen deprivation alone. A more recent study looked at androgen deprivation plus abiraterone. Looked at roughly uh, 1,200 patients. The same sort of idea: androgen deprivation versus androgen deprivation plus abiraterone. Again, these patients all need to get some prednisone as well. We'll talk about that shortly. They had to have some high-risk features, uh, and they found the median progression-free survival improved even more. Uh, uh, this is radiographic progression-free survival. Uh, which is a, 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 a substantial benefit. And the median overall survival, you can't even ben- measure the benefit because they haven't even reached the median survival yet in the patients that receive the combination therapy. So this is the overall survival benefit. I mean, what I'm most impressed about this is that the Kaplan-Meier curves are continuing to uh, get farther apart. And when you look at radiographic uh, progression-free survival, you also clearly see a benefit with the abiraterone plus LHRH, versus uh, the LHRH plus placebo. This sort of stepwise uh, effect is due to every uh, uh, roughly every, I think it's every six months, maybe even a little more than that, every four months getting imaging uh, uh, and uh, patients finding out they have metastatic disease. Again, Stampede, which is a really fantastic study uh, where they're randomizing patients in multiple different arms, uh, essentially had exactly the same result, showing that abiraterone plus uh, uh, LHRH beats LHRH alone in patients with castrate-sensitive disease. So that's sort of the background on castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. As you can tell, it's not been included in the, in, the, uh, in the algorithm yet. But as urologists, I think that we see an awful lot of patients now, particularly with the changes in screening uh, uh, recommendations, who present with metastatic disease. So I think we need to be aware of this, and we need to use it in our patients. I think it's uh, essentially the standard of care now to at least consider it, uh, if not give it in patients with good performance status. So uh, this is the, the clinical algorithm. We already went through all these uh, 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 different index patients. So we'll go through them. Index patient 1. This is a patient with asymptomatic non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So this is the guy that was put on hormone therapy when his PSA started to go up. And you know five years uh, later, his PSA is undetectable, and five years later his PSA is starting to rise. You get imaging. Can't find any metastatic disease. Okay? So the clinician uh, should recommend observation with continued androgen deprivation of these patients with non-metastatic CRPC. The issue here is there's no real studies that have shown a benefit by giving patients anything in this disease space. Okay? Clinicians may offer treatment with first-generation anti androgens flutamide, biclutamide, and alutamide Again, as we go through these, remember these were written about five or four or five years ago. Uh, and the recommend, the, re, it would, this was the reckon, uh, recognition that a lot of people were using biclidamide in this patient population uh, or first-generation androgen synthesis inhibitors, uh, Ketoconazole uh, in particular. Again, at this point in time, Abiraterone had just been, had been introduced, Ketoconazole was not even covered uh, by many uh, uh, insurers. And we thought it was important to give people uh, an out if they ran into insurance difficulties. And the patient essentially insisted on some form of treatment. But you should, you, there's no data that would say that you be, the patients benefit by getting any of these treatments. You know, I, I personally resist it. Uh, Clinicians should, should not offer systemic chemotherapy or immunotherapy to these patients, at least outside of a clinical trial, because you're going to cause harm, not benefit. Index patient two. This is a patient with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic metastatic castrate-resistant disease who have never received prior dose of taxal chemotherapy. So the clinician should offer abiraterone and prednisone or enzalutamide or docetaxel or CYPT to these patients who have good performance status. And the standard uh, evidence is either a grade A or a grade B. Uh, You could offer first-generation antiandrogen therapy, meaning ketoconazole, uh, to patients who do not want or cannot have one of the standard therapies. I mean, again, when these were written, we were running into issues with insurance companies refusing to cover abiraterone. I think that's less of an issue in this day and age. So th- this is the basis of the docetaxel recommendation. Uh, TAX 327 was a study of about 1,000 patients who had metastatic castrate-resistant disease and good performance status, so ECOG performance at 0 and 1. They received prednisone daily plus docetaxel at two different doses, either 75 milligrams every three weeks, which did become the standard treatment option, or a lower dose of docetaxel, which was given weekly versus mitazantrum, which was the best chemotherapy that was available at that point in time. And they found that patients who received docetaxel every three weeks showed a significant better survival than those who received mitazantrum. Uh, it is actually the second randomized trial is one that was done uh, through SWOG by Dan Petrolak uh, in this study, they gave docetaxel estramustine and dexamethasone versus mitazantron and prednisone. Estramustine was a drug that people were very intrigued with at that point in time. I think because of toxicity, this is no longer given in combination with docetaxel. This is the TAX 327 uh, uh, data. Uh, and uh, in contrast to those, those Kaplan-Meier curves I showed you earlier for castrate-sensitive prostate cancer, where you can see the Kaplan-Meier curves getting farther and farther apart, and you haven't actually reached the point where patients are dying, uh, here uh, you can see a fairly rapid aggression, and at six years pretty much everybody has died. But, you know, the red line is the, uh, is the, uh, is the docetaxel every three weeks, uh, and that shows a clear survival benefit over the mitoxantron, which is the green. Averatron is another drug that uh, uh, can be used in this space. Uh this is the uh, mechanism of action which is uh, essentially inhibiting cholesterol uh being uh converted into testosterone and dihydrotestosterone. Uh, ab- uh which is a CYP17 inhibitor uh inhibits uh, the production of the uh, of the of the androgens and it does not uh, at least as much inhibit uh, the production of mineral corticoids or glucocorticoids, uh, and uh, while we do put patients on prednisone because there is some inhibition, uh, it really is not as dramatic as, say, ketoconazole, uh, which was the standard treatment we had in this space in the past. So the first trial that came out that looked at this was called Key Cougar uh, three twenty seven. This was about a thousand. Excuse me, three oh two. This is a study of about a thousand patients who had metastatic, castrate sensitive prostate cancer excuse me metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer no prior chemotherapy they were given either prednisone and abiraterone or placebo and uh, they found a significant improvement in radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival so here's the radiographic progression-free survival roughly having the risk of progression uh, and improving it from about eight months to about 16 months And again you see the same sawtooth pattern here as the imaging was going on if you look at overall survival, you can see the hazard ratio is about 0.81, and you can see there's clearly a benefit for the abiraterin and prednisone over the prednisone alone. The benefit is a little over four months, Okay, not a home run, but uh, certainly a statistically significant and, I think, meaningful improvement in survival. Enzalutamide is also a drug that's on the hormonal axis. This is its mechanism of action. Uh, testosterone gets into the cell where it uh, normally translocates into the nucleus. And then uh, androgen-specific genes, after binding the receptor, are then transcribed. And then enzalutamide blocks this interaction between testosterone and the androgen receptor, thereby inhibiting the production of genes that are important for the cancer cell to stay alive, and the cancer cell dies. The Phase three PREVAIL trial looked at enzalutamide and placebo in almost 2,000 patients who had, were chemotherapy naïve, so this is pre-dose space, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. They received either 160 milligrams per day of enzalutamide or a placebo. And they stopped the trial after a planned interim analysis after 540 deaths because it looked so good with a hazard ratio of 0.7. Uh, and a radiographic progression-free survival was 0.18, which is fairly impressive. This is the, the schema. Uh, patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic chemo-naive disease—they were allowed to get steroids, but not required. Prior anti- no prior, an- prior anti- anti-antihistamines were allowed, but not required, and patients uh, at, at, with visceral disease uh, were also allowed. This is important as we start talking about some of the other uh, treatments. Uh, enzalutamide versus placebo, and the, and the usual endpoints. So here's the radiographic progression-free survival. I mean, that's a fairly impressive separation of the two curves. I think you almost don't need statistics to know that it helped in that regard. And we looked at overall survival. uh, We also see a benefit. The top arm is the enzalutamide arm. The bottom arm is the placebo arm. And you can clearly see a benefit. I think one of the things that we should just point out as we go through all of these is, one, the Kaplan-Meier curve seemed to be getting farther and farther apart as we get more and more drugs. And fewer and fewer patients are dying as we get farther out. I think this reflects two things, better drugs, but also the fact that the patient population we're treating now is gradually evolving to patients that probably have slightly earlier disease. cyp uh, this is an immunotherapy. Uh, I think many people are, are, are familiar with it. It, uh, it, it hinges on uh, the body, body's own immune system learning how to fight the cancer. So uh, they take a uh, prostate acid phosphatase, a GMCF fusion protein, uh, they take these and expose these to uh, dendritic cells that are taken from the patient, sent to the actual uh, site where this uh, is done. The dendritic cells are exposed to this fusion protein, and the, uh, the, the dendritic cell becomes hyper-aware of uh the uh, the prostate acid phosphatase and as a result hyperaware of the prostate cancer cell and then they put it back in the patient and these t cells then tell the dendritic cells tell the body then to attack the prostate cancer cells so uh you know they do a leukopheresis, the sip t is manufactured ex vivo not in the patient at a remote site then it's given back it's reinfused into the patient and uh, and then it, this all happens again, it happens three times. So the IMPACT trial was a trial of about 512 patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic disease. So this is really important, okay? For CYPT, it was never studied in patients that had symptomatic disease. So it's minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic disease. Uh, these are patients that were randomized to either sipT t versus a placebo, and they compared the two and found there was a relative reduction in death of 22%, which was statistically significant. It's important that there's no progression-free survival advantage. PSA is not affected by uh, by t So this is the median survival. The top arm is the patients who receive sipT. t The bottom arm is the patients who receive placebo, and you can see there's a benefit. Benefit uh, was approximately... Uh, three months. Index patient three. This is a patient who's symptomatic, metastatic disease, good performance status, and no prior dose of taxol. So the difference between patient one and patient two is now we have a patient who's symptomatic. Okay. So the offerings are either abiraterone and prednisone, enslutamide, or dose So the thing that's been dropped here is Cip t and at the bottom it says clinicians should not offer sip to patients with symptomatic disease and that's because it wasn't tested in this patient population you don't really see a change in progression so there's really no uh, data out there that would say you're going to make the patients less symptomatic which is obviously important again we've talked about the reason why we included ketoconazole uh, several times or radionucleotide therapy these are for patients who cannot or don't want to have any of these FDA approved agents Patients with bone mets who are symptomatic, metastatic disease, and good performance status can also be offered radium-223. So that's the new drug in our metarium, and that's because that's why these patients—the uh, the randomized trial included these patients. Uh, they have to have no known visceral metastases. Okay, and it's important to emphasize that lymph node mets are not visceral metastases. So this is the, the schema patients with castrate resistant symptomatic bone mess and no visceral metastases. They could have received prior dose attacks. They could receive uh, current bisphosphonates and they could have an elevated alkaline f- f- uh, phosphatase. That's how it was stratified. OK, and they either received the treatment or the standard of care uh, with the standard of care or placebo in the standard of care. Again, patients who had lymphadenopathy up to three centimeters could be included. So this is the radium-223 Kaplan-Meier curve. You can see the patients did better that it received the radium than the patients who received a placebo. And it was about a 30 percent reduction in death, which is fairly impressive. And I'm having a little trouble reading it from here, but this should be an improvement of about, about three to four months. OK, index patient four. So the change here is now you have patients who have a poor performance status, OK? and no prior dose of taxol chemotherapy. And the clinicians can offer treatment with abiraterone and prednisone and or, or enzalutamide in these patients who have had no prior dose of taxol chemotherapy. Now remember, these patients poor performance status patients were not included in the randomized trials. So that's why the, the level of evidence is less. Uh, Again, uh, ketoconazole uh, or radionucleotide could be used as an alternative therapy in these patients, though clearly these ones are favored. Uh, This patient uh, could also be offered docetaxel or mitosentron chemotherapy in patients in which we felt the performance status was directly related to the cancer, and that was expert opinion. We spent a lot of time debating this uh, when we were going through these index patients. Uh, We all recognize that patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer who get docetaxel and have symptomatic METs actually improve, they get better. That's, That's from the randomized trial. That's from 327. They demonstrated that in the trial. And so the feeling was is you would hate not to give somebody who came in very debilitated because of their metastatic disease and withhold effective treatment. So it's a little bit of a decision, cur- a decision there. Uh, if the symptoms are due to the metastatic cancer, then you know, docetaxel is reasonable. If it's not, then you probably shouldn't. The same thing really with radium-223, okay? Because in selected cases, specifically when the performance status is directly related to the symptoms of the bone metastases, okay? Again, expert opinion. Index patient 5. So now we're on the other side of docetaxel. Okay? These are patients who have all received systemic chemotherapy and have castrate-resistant prostate cancer, okay? and they need to be symptomatic with a good performance status. You notice there's no in- asymptomatic because we, our feeling was in this space pretty much everybody who has uh, 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 metastatic castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer who received docetaxel, pretty much all of them have some form of symptoms. So the patient should offer treatment with abiraterone and prednisone carbazitaxel or enzalutamide okay uh, the uh, you could again offer the ketoconazole if you couldn't get your insurance company to pay for any of these drugs i really don't think that's an issue in 2017. so abiraterone this is the cougar 301 trial a very similar trial looking at just over a thousand patients who would received docetaxel okay same uh, as the cougar 302 they received either abiraterone plus prednisone versus a placebo And here you can see the Kaplan-Meier curve clearly favoring the abiraterone over the placebo uh, with a nice hazard ratio of 0.65, clearly beneficial. The AFFIRM trial, almost exactly the same thing, but looking at enzalutamide instead of abiraterone. So just over uh, 2,000, excuse me, just over 1,000 patients who received prior-dose taxable chemotherapy, again, the same doses uh, as the PREVAIL trial. That was the trial for the pre-Docetaxel space, uh, and uh, they got 160 milligrams of enzalutamide daily versus placebo, and they saw that survival favored enzalutamide by approximately uh, five months, but, and there was also statistical superiority for all secondary endpoints. So again, here's the Kaplan-Meier curve. You can see that enzalutamide did better than placebo in these patients who had castrate-resistant disease and had already received docetaxel. Carbazitaxel. So this is another chemotherapy uh, related to docetaxel. It's also a taxane. Uh, And uh, 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 this was one of the first secondary treatments to actually be found to be effective. They did an open-label randomized phase 3 trial of patients who had received prior docetaxel and then progressed. They got 25 milligrams of carbazitaxel intravenously with oral prednisone every three weeks versus mitosantrone. This trial was, I believe, actually started before docetaxel was actually FDA approved. Uh, And they found an improvement of about three months in terms of survival and about a month in terms of progression-free survival. I think the recommended dose has actually gone down to 20 milligrams now. Uh, Our medical oncologist, one of them, is going to discuss this this trial in more detail and this treatment in more detail. You can clearly see a benefit of the carbazitaxel over the mitoxantrone, a 30% reduction in the relative risk of death. Clearly beneficial, no doubt about it. Index patient 5 can also be offered retreatment with docetaxel in patients who had good performance status who were benefiting at the time of discontinuation. So uh, docetaxel is often given for 10 doses, 10 cycles, and then stopped. Patient was doing very well. They wanted a little drug holiday. We thought it was wrong to withhold that treatment from a patient, uh, that the patient might benefit from continuing to be on it. It was effective therapy, and they tolerated it well. Why wouldn't we want to give it to them again? Uh, and uh, also radium-223. Uh, these are patients who—and uh, again, the reason why it's a level C is there's no randomized data to say that would, was true, right? Uh, this is the radium-223, patients whose symptoms from bony metastasis from metastatic disease and good performance status who received prior dostaxel with and without, uh, without known visceral metastatic disease. This is the same trial I showed you earlier. It included patients both before docetaxel and after docetaxel, so clearly this is a very effective treatment in patients who have metastatic disease to the bone. This is index patient 6. This is a patient with symptomatic metastatic disease, poor performance status, and has received prior chemotherapy. Uh, The feeling here is that this patient should be offered palliative care. It's really difficult to do that. But there's absolutely no data out there that you'll make this patient live a day longer and there's a lot of data out there that you'll call this patient grave harm Uh, you know we did feel that sometimes it is hard you know one of the the lessons with these guidelines is people sort of fasten on them and we didn't want to handcuff people they couldn't do anything Uh, so we did include the option of treating with abiraterone enzalutamide ketoconazole or steroids notice none of the chemotherapies are on here we thought they were too toxic uh, and that doesn't mean there's not some toxicity associated with abiraterone and enzalutamide; just we thought it was much less. Uh, they should not offer systemic chemotherapy. I'm going to touch briefly on bone health. Uh, the following statements apply to all index patients. So one, two, three, four, five, and six. Clinicians should offer preventive treatment, supplemental calcium and vitamin D, to prevent fractures and scale related events to all patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer. I mean i do this on any of my patients i put on hormone ablation period i mean why wait i mean i would actually argue uh that we probably should have people on it when they were uh, uh i'm smiling because i'm going to tell you the anecdote for a second we should uh we should probably put on as soon as everybody over the age of 60 should be should be put on these those of none of you would have been here except larry larry was here last time i, I broke my leg uh, and I had to do this talk last time in crutches and uh, I had my vitamin D checked. I'm 52 years old. My vitamin D was low, so now I'm on supplemental vitamin D. So let's face it, none of us get enough sunlight. None of us eat quite right. Probably all of us should be on supplemental vitamin D and calcium. Clinicians may choose either denosumab or zolindronic acid when selecting a preventive treatment for skull related events with bony metastasis. So this is the algorithm. I went through this in detail, so all of this should—I know you can't read it, but that's why we went through it in detail. But it's all right there for you. It's not the only algorithm that's out there. So this is the NCCN guidelines for M0 castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, This is a a, a different way of looking at it. They have uh, different uh, 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 treatment options. Uh, looking at PSA was rising, looking at imaging. My point is not actually to go through this in detail, but to make sure you understand that there are other ones that are out there. Uh, I think the problem, particularly with the NCCN guidelines, for at least for M0, it becomes a little like a laundry list. I mean, the AUA guideline was designed to allow the clinician who was actually looking at the patient to figure out what the best treatment option was. I sometimes feel like this one was actually designed to just give you a laundry list of what was available. And it's designed a, a little bit to allow people to choose the treatment that they think is best for an individual patient, to make sure it's approved and that it can be used, and not really so much to guide the individual physician who's making a difficult decision. Uh, again, it's sort of a laundry list uh, of, of, uh, of, of options which really include every option I've just sort of talked to you about. Uh, 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 so the EAU has come up with guidelines. Just again, important to recognize that these guidelines exist. Uh, For those of you out there, some of you may say, look, I like the EAU guidelines better. Some people might like the NCCN guidelines uh, better. Uh, If that's what allows you to take optimal care of your patient, then use those guidelines. But I would try and use a guideline uh, to give you some, uh, some help in terms of deciding which treatment to use in which patient. So this is my conclusion. The AUA, uh, Castrate Resistant Prostate Cancer Guidelines, identified six common clinical scenarios. It correlates these scenarios with approved agents, incorporating comorbid conditions, degree of symptomatology, and the performance status, which allows you to make the optimal decision making for an individual patient who presents to you in your clinic. This is importantly a rapidly changing field. That's why I included the data on castrate sensitive prostate cancer. And believe me, there's uh, uh, things that uh, continue to evolve. I mean, the dose of carbamazotaxel has changed. Uh, uh, you know, there's data about which uh, uh, bone density agents you should use. Uh, You've got to stay on top of it if you're going to actually be giving these, these treatments in your clinic. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the field is changing faster than the guidelines can actually change. There are the guidelines available. Uh, I personally think the AUA guideline is the best one. Uh, for the reasons I outlined, that it will actually help you figure out how to take care of your patient. That's really what a guideline is for. I think you need to understand the available agents, indications, contraindications, and side effects. This will allow for optimal sequencing and optimization of therapeutic benefit. This is a panel, as I uh, outlined earlier. Really, Mike, I can't, Michael Cookson deserves a huge amount of the credit for all of this. Uh, uh, Will Lawrence also uh, deserves a huge amount of uh, credit for this in terms of putting together the, uh, the amendment. Uh, and then uh, multiple other individuals within the, uh, within the AUA, both uh, uh, urologists and medical oncologists, uh, and uh, Hassan Murad, who really kept us on task. Uh, uh, you can only imagine how hard it is to keep all these people actually moving forward and coming up to consensus. Consensus is always difficult. And that's it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of the AUA University podcast. Our podcast can be found on Google Play and Apple iTunes, as well as SoundCloud. If you have any suggestions, please send them to education at auanet.org. Until next time, thank you for listening.